0: Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to John chapter three. We'll look at verses one through fifteen this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin. Uh, it's a rather fam- famous dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, and we're going to take it in two parts this week and next week. Um, next week we'll look at verse uh, sixteen and following, uh, which is still Jesus um, lecturing Nicodemus. So. <clears throat> It's a classic passage for one of the major doctrines of the Reformation, that uh, historical time period, that historical uh, event, if you will, that we're actually uh, acknowledging today because it's Reformation Sunday. Uh, uh, it, this is a classic passage for one of the major doctrines of the Reformation, and that is uh, spiritual regeneration, spiritual regeneration, or being born again as a work of God's spirit. So that phrase, being born again, has some uh, interesting, probably usually bad connotations in our culture. Maybe you yourself have had an experience with um, uh, with someone who is uh, claiming to be born again and it comes across as they're arrogant or holier-than-now type people and make you feel condemned like an outsider because you're doing life wrong. Right, um, whether they're subtle about that or not, that can be something that gets communicated. I think, and uh, that are, is a familiar experience in our culture. But, um, but Jesus is actually saying that um, that an, an arrogant, holier than thou, condescending type of person is exactly the kind of person who needs to be born again of the Spirit. Um, spiritual regeneration doesn't make you arrogant. It takes arrogant, self-righteous people, and it humbles them by bringing them into a new relationship with God. So the very need for it, which Jesus emphasizes here, you must be born again. Um, The very need for it implies that you are simply and totally in a state of need. That's not the position of someone who has the, the right to boast or condescend. Uh, we have nothing to boast about, nothing to commend us before God for our relationship with him. And not only the need for it, does that point to that, but the essence of what spiritual regeneration actually is. What it really is, is the unconditionally free gift of God um, being made new in inconceivable ways. Really ways that we, uh, we would not conceive of, let alone map out and achieve for ourselves. Putting, putting your old self behind you everything that characterizes you as a a sinner in this world, putting that behind you and being brought into something new that you never could have earned or achieved for yourself. And that's all a free gift of God's grace. So spiritual regeneration takes people who are seeking autonomy from God, and it makes them delightedly dependent on God as their father in Christ. It creates a new relational reality that allows us to see and engage in everything from a new perspective, and it uh, completely removes any idea of boasting from us, the fact that we need it and what this really is, spiritual regeneration. So that's what we're going to talk about from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus uh, this morning. Let me pray and read the Scripture. Father, the very things that we're talking about, that Jesus talked about so long ago and that we need to hear... um, would impel us, compel us to ask you for help to hear it. Um, This is a foreign subject matter to us. It's something that we're prone to resist. Um, We need your help on, on a level and in ways that we don't even understand. And if we really understood, there's a lot of ways in which we just would continue to resist you. So we pray for your Spirit's help, that you would convince us of your love for us in such a way that uh, enables us to open ourselves to you, to your, uh, to your searching sight, and to the help that's offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so uh, let's be honest. I think we had a bit of a rough time last week, didn't we? Um, we heard some hard words from Jesus and uh, about Jesus um, that Jesus knows us too well to trust us. He knows what's inside of us, and that led him to distrust us. And what um, we we heard about what that means for all of our relationships, really, the kind of people I that, that the kind of person I am, and the kind of people we are that we should trust Christ alone, we should depend on him alone for our good, yet at the same time open our lives to one another and love each other, right? that our trust in Christ frees us to love those that we actually can't trust. Right? And, um, and like I mentioned last week, that, that really hard word uh, was transitional. Right? It was an introductory passage leading right into this one. Uh, So Jesus didn't trust people because he knew what was in man, and there was this one man, the text says, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is about to find himself getting open-heart surgery. He had no idea that he was signing up for this when he came to Jesus, and he probably wouldn't have come if he had known Jesus was going to engage him on this level, the level that that he engages him on. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and one commentator, uh, I I like his uh, translation of it, it's a bit playful it says that he's a member of the serious party that's basically a good uh, <clears throat> good way to think about it he's he's a dignified well educated important man who approached morality and religion with all rigor all rigor and in fact he wasn't just a member of the serious party um, he was a leader. He says he was a ruler of the Jews. That means he was one of the Sanhedrin, right? One of the, the, the spiritual elite, the cultural elite, not just spiritual, because in those days uh, and in that place, um, if you were somebody in society, it had very much to do with who you are religiously, right? So the high, this is the high court. The Sanhedrin was the high court that combined religious and political and judicial functions, in their society, and this was one of those elite few people. So this guy has his whole life together in ways that you and I can't even imagine. He does everything right. He does everything by the book. He is an impeccable judge over Israel. And If, if ever anyone was to feel good about himself, it's this guy. It's Nicodemus. Right? He detects that you know, there's something about this Jesus that could probably make him a good, useful ally. Right? So he comes to Jesus by night, and here John is using that language as it appears a lot of times in, in John's language. It's got connotations. Um, he's drawing attention to the, the clandestine nature of this meeting, right? um, as if to say that he stole in under the cover of darkness. Tim Keller says that he's, he's there to do some backroom dealing. Um, and he comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, respectfully, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God and that no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Clearly, you are someone to be reckoned with and not ignored. And we know the perfect category for you, teacher, rabbi. And that sets Jesus off. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't ever lose it. He doesn't lose control. But this is a trigger for him. He sees something here that needs to be addressed. He teaches Nicodemus all right. You can call me a teacher. He teaches him up, up one side and down the other. And Nicodemus can hardly collect himself after this or get a word in edgewise. Why? What is wrong with what Nicodemus said? I bet there's a lot of us that look at that and say, he's just being respectful, right? What's wrong with what he said? Jesus heard something in what he said, uh, but he also knew what was in his heart. I said that last week, that uh, Nicodemus was, he's approaching him merely as a teacher. He's got a category to put Jesus in to keep him in. He's got a compartment for that. You're a good teacher. Even a divine teacher. There are a lot of people who approach Jesus that way, whether they're uh, non-Christians, maybe being a little bit patronizing, saying, yeah, he's a great teacher. You know, I don't, I don't think he's much more than that, but he's a great teacher, sure. right?" Um, or, or even Christians, who view Jesus as primarily... Someone to help me get my life together. A life coach. A spiritual advisor. Someone who leads by example. Someone who tells you and shows you how to do life right. Isn't that what Jesus is? Reducing Jesus to teacher is just that. It's reducing him. It's reducing him. Sometimes, actually, merely doing what Jesus says can be a way to keep him at a distance, actually to hold him at bay and, and ward off his claim on you, right? to compartmentalize him. So if you just see Jesus as a useful ally, maybe in your self-improvement project, uh, you engage with him as someone who helps you to be a little nicer or uh, someone to motivate you to try a little harder, you will discover that you are not engaging him on his terms. That's not who he came to be. And when he comes to you and engages on his terms, it's going to be uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable for all of us. Don't, you're no exception. It's uncomfortable when Jesus comes to engage with us on his terms. Teacher? He says. Teacher? You pay close attention. I'm going to teach you something. Truly, truly, I say to you, it happens a few times in this passage, he's, he's making sure we know that he's emphasizing you should listen to this. Okay? You're going to listen to something? You listen to this. You need more than a patch, a band-aid, a little help here and there. You're dead inside, and you need new life. Your relationship with God is broken, and you need a new one. Um, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need to stop. This seems like a kind of a non-sequitur for um, Nicodemus to come in and say, we think you're a great teacher. And then Jesus goes off about this being born again. But this is why this lines up, because he will not stand to just be called a teacher. right? You need to stop approaching me as a teacher who can make you better, a better version of yourself. And you need to come to me as your Savior who can make you new because that's what you really need. Not just to be a little better. You need to be made entirely new. That's why I came, Jesus says. And he must insist, really. You cannot just receive him as merely a teacher. You can't keep him on that level. He won't stand for it. So, at which point, uh, Nicodemus coughs uncomfortably and uh, tries to relieve the tension by cracking a joke. How can a man... (laughs) Be born again when he's old. How can that happen? Is he going to crawl back inside the womb and then be born again? Come on, you know? I mean, he's, he's trying to alleviate the tension with some humor. But Jesus doesn't let up. He actually keeps the pressure on. This is a very awkward situation for Nicodemus. We find ourselves in awkward situations when we're confronted by Jesus, when, when he's engaging with us on his terms, uh, and you can't squirm out from underneath it. Jesus doesn't let up. Nicodemus, if you're going to understand the kingdom of God, if you're going to see it, if you're going to perceive it and recognize it, and if you're going to enter it, you have to be born again of water and spirit. Of water and the spirit. So he is referring to uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37, and Jerry read some uh, of the Old Testament reading, was the, uh, a bit of a passage from Ezekiel 36, where it says, God says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit in you. So it's this picture of total renewal. That is, uh, it's pictured for us in baptism. I think that's maybe why the concept of water is, uh, is called attention to here. But it's, it's the spiritual regeneration right, that baptism uh, points to or can be the instrument of. Right, that um, that we need to be made clean, we need to be given a new heart, we need to enter into a new relationship with God, and that comes at his initiative, through his working, through his making us new, giving us a new life, new relationship. And then in Ezekiel 37, uh, it's a famous passage, the the Valley of Dry Bones, where um, God asks Ezekiel, what do you think? You think these bones can live? And... um, like, I don't know, a bunch of dead bones, skeletons scattered all over the, the dusty earth. Um, I don't know. And, uh, and, and it's by the Lord's breath. By the wind, the breath, the spirit. And those, those are three different ways of translating the same word that is in Hebrew, ruach, and in Greek, pnefma. Um These words can be translated uh, as either wind or breath or Spirit. And there's word plays going on in both Ezekiel 37 and in our passage with that. Right? There's word plays. Uh, the breath of the Lord, the wind of the Lord comes rattling through the, the dry bones, through the valley, and they spring to new life. They come back from the dead. And, um, and in our passage, the wind blows where it wishes. That's the, uh, it could be translated, the spirit spirits where he wishes. Right? And, um, and so The point is, this is a work of God. This is totally a work of God. It's His grace. It's His initiative. You need His grace at work in your life to regenerate you. To cause you to be born again. right? Um, If if you're even going to see His kingdom. So regeneration or being born again is in fact, it's more than hitting the reset. It's more than wiping the slate clean. It's the establishment of a new identity in God. It's the establishment of a new relationship with God. It's becoming a child of God as a gift of his grace through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's more than a new way of life. It's a new life. It's Like the essence of life itself has become... New. It's entering into a new life, actually the life of Jesus Christ himself. It's the life of Jesus Christ alive in us. He who is the true and only begotten Son of God. He's the one who enjoys the relationship that we wish we had, that we need. The relationship of being the beloved Son of the Father. He enjoys that, and when his life comes to life in us, now we enjoy that very same relationship. And so, um, being born again of the Spirit means, as John says earlier in his gospel in chapter 1, it means being given the right, being given the right to become a child of God in the same way, actually, that Jesus is God's Son. Not, so, uh, it's a really bold statement. I know Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's eternally generated. That's the theological term for… he, he has his sonship from the Father eternally. There's never a point… Uh, before which he was the Son of God. He always is the Son of God. He's eternally generated, and that's something that we cannot share, but, but he has his eternal generation, his eternal sonship from the Father through the Holy Spirit. He has his humanity in the same way, from the Father through the Holy Spirit. And it's the same Holy Spirit that regenerates us. Right? Think of, think of generation. I think we usually think of it as uh, having something to do with power, right? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of an ancestry term, right? These are the generations of Adam or Noah or whoever you have in the Old Testament. These are the generations. This is the, the son of this father and the son of this father. That's the generation in the way the Bible's talking about it. And we've been granted the very same sonship as Jesus enjoys with his Father because we've been born again of God by the Holy Spirit. And this happens as the, Spirit, um, as the Spirit reveals Christ to us. This is how it happens. The Spirit reveals Christ to us. He directs our hearts to Jesus Christ. He connects us and unites us to the one who is the true Son. And not just as teacher but as as Savior, as substitute. The Holy Spirit is the divine connector of persons. He's the one who connects the Son to the Father in this relationship, and he connects us to the Son so that we can have that same relationship. He connects us to the Son for our Sonship. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates you by causing you to trust Jesus Christ, by causing you to look at him and say, I need you and thank you that I have you, and I'm going to rest in you, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about at the end of the passage. It says in verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, may have eternal life. I know that's, um, if you're not familiar with that passage, uh, that that Jesus is referencing. It's uh, Numbers 21. It can be really confusing, like, wh- why is he talking about this? Um, but I'm going to read a little bit of Numbers 21, a uh, little bit of context for Jesus' comments here. <clears throat> it says that the people of Israel, as they were uh, being taken out of Egypt and being brought into the Promised Land, and they were wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, and um, had to rely... Uh, solely upon God in very clear and stark uh, and sometimes painful ways for their uh, sustenance, they became impatient. And the people spoke out against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food, stuff that God has provided miraculously in the middle of the desert. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And this seems like some kind of magical thing, right? Like I've got poison coursing through my veins, and you're telling me to look at a little statue on a pole, and suddenly I'll be revived and not die like my fallen comrades? God was setting up an illustration for us so that we could understand what Jesus is like and how we can be saved through him. You need Jesus the same way the Israelites needed that bronze serpent. You need Jesus the same way. You are dead and dying in your sins and your rebellion against God, and the death coming upon you comes actually as the righteous judgment of God, just like the fiery serpents We're the righteous judgment of God for the rebellion of the people in the wilderness, right? But he provides a way to live. He provides for you a way to live by putting your death up on a pole so that you can look at it. Putting your death up on a pole so you can look at it and be spared. And Augustine saw the connection uh, here, one of the great church fathers, um, he said that a death was gazed on that death may have no power a death was gazed on that death may have no power and that's the way that our salvation works that in jesus christ god took your sin which is the cause of your death the righteous judgment of god and he he put it up on the pole on the cross he took your sin and he killed it he took your death and he killed it, so that those who look to the death of Jesus Christ by faith and put their trust, look to him in hope for their salvation, they'll live in a renewed relationship with God as their father. You are always, only, utterly, entirely at God's mercy for this, just like a baby is entirely at its mother's mercy for birth and life. But, um, but God, in his great love and his mercy, has chosen you t- to give you life by sending his Son and by giving you his Spirit. So this whole thing, this whole salvation, this whole relationship with God is all a gift of his grace. And that's why those who are born of the Spirit, who simply look to Christ and have their sins and their death taken away and have a new relationship with God reestablished simply by looking to Jesus, to who he is and what he's done for us, That's why those of us who are born of the Spirit have no room for gloating, no room for boasting or bragging or feeling superior or being condescending or making others feel like they're outsiders. There's no room for it. The only reason we are not outsiders, but we're actually members of God's very own family, is because that's what kind of God he is, entirely in spite of what kind of people we are. And that's why Nicodemus is the the perfect representative for us I mean if Jesus came telling this guy that he needed to be born again that his whole life all of his morality all of his religion it, it mattered not at all it counted for nothing if he, if Jesus is coming and telling this man that he needs a regeneration and a new life and a new heart and a new relationship with God as a gift of his grace then none of us is exempt from that same need you have that need If you're going to see God in his kingdom, you need the work of his spirit directing you to trust in his son for your salvation. And be glad that's exactly why Jesus came into the world. That's exactly why. It might be uncomfortable for you as Jesus brings you to full term. um, As you are birthed spiritually into this new relationship with God as your father, it's probably going to be uncomfortable uh, coming to grips with your deep need for his not just his help, not just his teaching, but his salvation. But it's for your good. It's for your glorious good. And Jesus actually has patience with Nicodemus. We see that a little bit here. We'll see it more next week. He has patience with Nicodemus and he has patience with you. And it looks like Nicodemus was actually uh, encouragingly um, uh, actually born of the Spirit as we see him a couple more times uh, throughout John's Gospel. So Um, If there's hope for him, there's good hope for people like us. So put your faith in Christ and be saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do tend to uh, put your son in a box, to put a label on him so that we could manage our interaction with him more on our terms. And we believe also that Jesus doesn't really stand for that. He doesn't go for that. Um, he wants to break our categories and shatter our expectations of, of who you are and what you're like and uh, the, need, the help that we need from you. Uh, we need more than just help. We need salvation from ourselves, from all of our ways, from uh, the sin that dwells in our flesh that we cannot rid ourselves from, the guilt that we have brought upon ourselves as a consequence of our rebellion and our straying from you, these are things that we cannot address, uh, not sufficiently. But you can, and you have addressed them, and we pray that you would help us to see how you've addressed uh, our greatest needs, our need for salvation in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would give us clarity about him, that you would help us to be assured that he came into the world because of love, for love's sake, because you loved us and not because you're uh, just a threat, destructive threat to us, something to be feared. We want to open ourselves up to Jesus because uh, we know, uh, at least intellectually, we know that he is good. We pray that you would help us to know that in our hearts as you make us new by your Holy Spirit and direct our hearts to Jesus. Uh, in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.